to another edition of Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. We know the law. It's our choice. We're watching Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 27, which begins with Auntie reminding Master of the stakes involved with Thunderdome, and it ends with Auntie welcoming the assembled crowd to the main event. All of these episodes that we've been releasing, a lot of the time I've used one audio clip specifically. Yes. To start the episode. This is the minute where we hear that audio clip. So for once, <laughs> at least one episode is going to start with the quote pulled from the episode itself. Yes. So hooray for me. Unless I go behind my own back in the editing booth and sabotage myself and pull a different quote. I don't want to believe that I would do that to myself. So. I, think, I think it depends on how mischievous you're feeling when you edit this particular episode. There are certainly some situations where if I say I'm not going to do something, future Rick might just pop in out of nowhere and do the opposite just to be annoying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see yeah i don't know when i'm gonna get around to editing this episode because our production schedule is so speedy and tight and everything like that so who knows but what we do know is that auntie is standing up in her penthouse she is surrounded by light looking radiant practically angelic i would say and she is responding to master's request for thunderdome by saying you know the law Two men enter, one man leaves. Which Two prompt... men enter, one man leaves. Exactly, that's what the crowd does. They instantly jump on it, like a cheetah on a gazelle. Yeah. Johnny on the spot. <laughs> this <laughs> chanting helps to continue the idea of this being ceremonial mm -hmm. and quasi-religious. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting way to run a government. Can I make a quick side note? The phrase Johnny on the spot seems really applicable to this podcast specifically, because Max left Johnny on the spot and then um. he blew up <laughs> anyway getting back to the minute when auntie recites the laws of barter town do you think that she's always met with this response from the crowd like if she was giving a big speech and she had to recite one of the laws in that speech do you think she would put a note in her speech that would say pause for chanting only for when she says two men enter one man leaves now there is chanting that comes up when she says break a deal face the wheel i feel like the denizens of barter town have for lack of a term that I'm thinking of off the top of my head, deified her to the point where when she says one of these rules, that their automatic response is chanting. Because, like you said, it's quasi-religious for them. She is a figure out of myth and legend to take the desert and raise up a town out of it that I think they've definitely put her up on this pedestal. She is literally on top of a pedestal right now. Yes. I don't know why I'm pointing. This is an audio medium. No one can see me pointing. Because you and I are having a conversation and I can see you. Yes. And we spent half of the last episode we recorded pointing. <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> Thanks, Iron Bar. <laughs> 
Hmm. Okay, so the chanting thing, thinking about religious teachings and kind of equating the two. In religion, you learn by repetition. Mm -hmm. You learn the scriptures by reading the scriptures over and over and over again. And in church, you talk about the same subjects over and over and over again, because that's how you learn by repetition. So they're kind of going along those same lines that these basic rules that they have to live by, they've been trained to repeat them over and over so that they are just part of the general consciousness of the community. Yeah, if you want to live in Bartertown, if you want to trade in Bartertown, if you want to be involved with Bartertown, you need to internalize and make these rules a part of your essence. Yes. And chanting as part of a group not only helps you remember, but really doing any sort of thing in a group helps to foster camaraderie with other people in that group. One of the big reasons that you hear so much singing in churches and whatnot is because singing as a group fosters community. Like if you want to become fast friends with someone, sing with them. Yes. You look at theater kids that do musicals and choir kids that sing together and chamber choirs and things yeah. like that. Band. They're thick Marching as thieves. Band. Yeah. Do any sort of cooperative musical thing and you will become fast friends. Actually, it's not even music specifically. There's also like sports and whatnot. Yeah. You do any sort of activity together as a group where you're all doing the same thing. Yeah. I'm thinking it creates... specifically about conventions. Yeah, it creates a common experience that you can all latch on to. Yes. By the end of this minute, we see this event where everybody comes together and behaves in a similar way at the same time. It's very community oriented and it's very strong. Yeah, it's certainly remarkable to see. It is. This first chant doesn't really last all that long though. They just say it once and then they're done. Yes. There does seem to be a time and a place for one just call and response and then later on it's repeated and they somehow know when it's appropriate to do one style or the other yeah i'm pretty sure next week when we hear them do the consistent chanting that might also be dr deal good more or less conducting the choir yeah type of thing yeah definitely because they stop when he signals them to yes also reminded me of a pep rally mm, yes where everybody's getting excited and you start chanting something and it just goes until it peters out <laughs> so it's a little pep rally-ish absolutely i believe it yeah but i like the thought of the choir conductor mm -hmm. i think that's very accurate the second half of this chant the camera moves back to master blaster right I want to know what you think. It kind of looks like the second half of the chant, when the group is saying one man leaves, it kind of looks like Master's lips are moving. Do you think he is chanting along with everybody else? Let me see if I can... Yeah, go back and look. I tried to look, like, specifically. I watched that moment over and over again, and I just couldn't really decide. It could be. If he is, I find that fascinating. That even with his power plays and his superiority and his arrogance that he still chants with the group. Yeah, that he's still part of the community. Yes. <laughs> it might just be involuntary at that point. It might be. It might be so ingrained in his practices that it's just what he does. Yeah. In response to the statement, two men enter, one man leaves, Master says, this blaster, 20 men enter, only him leave. Well, first of all, that's not the rule, Master. It does matter how many people enter the dome. It's two people, not 21 people so cool your jets 
Calm down. Yeah. Earlier in this movie, and this is the point that I'm getting to, <laughs> Auntie said that Master Blaster are a unit. They even share the same name. Shouldn't Master Blaster enter Thunderdome as a unit? Because Max's quarrel is with Master. Yeah, I kind of had a question along that same thought process. Does Blaster get to go in because he's considered the same person as Master? Or does anybody have the opportunity to send in a delegate? Right, because the whole idea of Thunderdome. And we're going to get into this again. This We're going to retread this next week. We have a guest lined up, so it's going to be a similar yet different conversation. The whole idea of Thunderdome is that when you have two individuals with conflicting ideologies, you put them into a situation where one of them will destroy the other, leaving only one ideology behind. If you open up the possibility for anyone to designate a champion and send them into the Thunderdome, well, you've kind of ruined the whole point of Thunderdome because those two opposing ideologies still exist. And if that fight ends and the champion that was delegated is killed, well, guess what? You're going to have that same situation and you're going to have to do Thunderdome again until the person who is actually doing the fighting for what they believe in is killed. In which case, you've not served the public interest at all. You're not eliminating these disagreements. You're just postponing them. Yes, I agree. People are still going to... Max specifically is still going to have a problem with Master. That problem isn't going to go away. It will be decided upon mm -hmm. that Master wins, the vehicle belongs to him. Or Max wins and he gets the vehicle. Yeah, but if Master gets to live, even if he loses, Master gets to live. What's to keep Master from trying to get that vehicle back? Yeah. And to turn around and say, hey, I want that vehicle back. Here's my next champion. Yes. And then Max has to fight again to keep his vehicle. And it becomes this loop where because Max has a problem with Master, he should have to fight Master. But Master turns around and says, this blaster, fight him. It's very problematic. Yes. And this opportunity for Master to name a new delegate, that's a form of appeal. Exactly. And, and there Auntie are no said appeals. no appeals. So the cracks are starting to show. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it turns out having people fight to the death in order to resolve arguments is not a foolproof way of running your settlement. Who knew? I know. This is total revelation to me. I know. This is so weird. I thought this movie was solid <laughs> governmental perfection. You've got to remember that all of Max's time in Bartertown is technically a framing device around a story that Terry Hayes had written that did not exist in the Mad Max universe. Yeah. Like everything that happens after I'm pretty sure minute 40 up to the point where they go back to Bartertown, like that middle chunk, that's the story that Terry Hayes wrote and that he was telling his friend George Miller about. And then George Miller was like, oh, that'll make an awesome Mad Max story. Let me write some things at the beginning and some things at the end. We'll sandwich it all together and we'll make a movie. <laughs> this is kind of going off the minute, but both parts of this movie are fine stories. Yeah. They are interesting and compelling. It's just weird that they are sandwiched together in the way that they are. And at the moment in my analysis, I'm just not really thinking about that part of the movie. 
Oh, yeah, I agree. I'm focused on Thunderdome. And by the time we get to the waiting ones, I will have switched gears. And now I'm thinking about the waiting ones and their whole dilemma and story. I won't be thinking about Thunderdome anymore. Thunderdome's gone. It's in the past. Mm -hmm. It's just two completely separate stories. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But they're good stories. That is the exact case there. Following Master's declaration that Blaster will fight in his place, Auntie states, then it's your choice, Thunderdome. And this is an awesome line. It is. With one notable exception. Oh. Tina Turner does not pronounce the M in Thunderdome. She says Thunderdome. Yes. Which I imagine is what would happen if the Mighty Thor's hammer landed into a Bambi movie and Bambi's mother was able to pick it up and wield it even though she had hooves and not hands and no antlers to speak of because she was a girl. Dear, you know, Thunderdome. Thunder. To a casual observer, <laughs> this might not seem that important. We all know what she's saying. Mm-hmm. And our, our brains can put the M in there and we can hear it. But you, poor man, trying to use this line as our opener, can't find the M I in couldn't. there to save your life. I tried. I tried so hard to pull it from the minute and have it be a good opener. <laughs> and I was never satisfied. No. It's my curse. But you ended up with a fantastic one, which is also in this minute. So it all ended up fine in the end. One thing that makes it tricky to pull a line from this movie where Tina Turner is saying Thunderdome, aside from the fact that her accent pulls the M out of the word, it's that every time she declares anything related to Thunderdome, (laughs) there's either a musical sting or a cheer from the crowd. And we get instances of both of that in this minute because she says, it's your choice, Thunderdome. And we cut to the giant electric sign at the top of Thunderdome and it is rotating around and it is blinking live thunderdome and it is so theatrical and it's like a circus it's like the circus has come to barter town and people are ecstatic for it yes as soon as she says thunderdome the crowd who is already ramped up to eight then makes it all the way up to ten and they just come alive even more and they go a little bit wild when she declares thunderdome yep and they all start scurrying up the sides of the dome certainly do and this reminded me of a story from my childhood not about me kicking people out of my driveway for not playing with dolls correctly okay did you have a disagreement with a playmate and then someone declared thunderdome and then people started climbing over a jungle gym or something oh my gosh i wish i wish that we'd use that jungle gym more effectively it's as about the jungle pit? gym it's about the jungle gym yeah as a fighting pit it was the cool thing to do in elementary school to sit at the top of the jungle gym and also the monkey bars mm-hmm. so when it was recess time we would all run out there and climb as fast as we could to the top of the jungle gym to get that top spot the higher up there you landed the cooler you were gotcha yes so we were doing the exact thing that you see in this minute of scurrying up the jungle gym i have thoughts about the sign too okay i have a whole thing about the sign so the thunderdome sign and also hearkening back to the atomic Cat cafe sign i kind of wrapping those two in together they remind me of the neon signs from las vegas i see what you're saying yes yeah which also reminded me that there is 
a neon sign boneyard in Las Vegas. Yep. Where you can go and get a tour. And they also have a show in the evening where the restored signs light up and they give you a show. And they have like 200 of the old neon signs with like 20 of them have been fully restored. And it's called the Neon Museum. Okay. And it's on our list of things to do when we visit Las Vegas in December. That's something I would really love to do. I think it'd be really quite a sight to see. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Which kind of leads me into another thing about the signs of Las Vegas. That as of recording the second week of April, one of our favorite podcasts that we bring up a lot, 99% Invisible, just released an episode called... I think it's called Learning from Las Vegas? Lessons from Las Vegas. That's what it is. Yes. And they talk to the woman who authored the book called Learning from Las Vegas Mm -hmm. about the architecture of Las Vegas. And that includes the signage. It's a very important part of the architecture of Las Vegas. It's a fascinating podcast. Highly recommend it. They brought up a really good point about the architecture of Las Vegas that I think can be applied to the architecture of Thunderdome. They talked about this idea of the duck and the decorated shed. Okay. Which I had never heard before. I'm kind kind of interested in architecture. I've done a little bit of research and I know a little bit, but I'd never heard of this concept before. So the idea behind the duck and the decorated shed, a decorated shed is just a box of a building that has decoration or labeling or signage on it that tells you what happens inside the building. Okay. So like a giant warehouse that says shoes. Yes. And they use a perfect example, like big box stores, like Walmart. Yeah. It's a big, literally a big box store. It says Walmart on the front. You can remove the Walmart, sell the building to Lowe's, slap a Lowe's on it. It looks like the exact same building. There's absolutely no difference. So that's an example of that. A duck, that type of building is actually named after on Long Island, there is a company that sells duck meat and duck eggs the building is literally shaped like a duck gotcha so the idea of the duck is a building that is shaped in a way that tells you what happens inside that building another example of a duck is in ohio there's the longer burger basket company Mm -hmm. their headquarters is shaped like a basket okay so i kind of applied those principles to thunderdome and ask myself if Thunderdome is a duck or a decorated shed. And it's kind of both. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how to elaborate on that, but I definitely see where you're coming from where, yeah, it has a giant sign at the top, and if you take the sign off, it can become literally anything. But at the same time as you look at it, it's, it's a, literally a dome. It's a dome, and it's outfitted very plainly to see from the outside with hooks and death traps and A bungee things. system. <laughs> like, it's a fighting pit. It is what it is. So, yeah, it's an interesting situation there. What I noticed about Thunderdome in this shot where the sign is spinning around is that there is a very brightly lit word, namely the word live, which gave me pause because, of course, the fights would be live because, for some reason, cameras and televisions don't exist in this world. Maybe it doesn't say live. Maybe it says live. Mm, It says live. (laughs) Well, yeah, it does say live. But you're right. That has absolutely no context. Like, I think at this point, it would be more impressive if they advertised that they were pre-recorded fights. Yeah. <laughs> they're just showing fights over and over again. 
Like if they had a complicated system of cameras set up around the dome and they had someone whose job it was to edit that footage together so that way they could show it off at a later time, I'd be very impressed with that because you don't see that in the post-apocalypse. You know what they could do is they could reenact previous fights <laughs> that were particularly tense or exciting. Like a Punch and Judy show type of thing? Yes, would that be considered live? Yes, because... Is a reenactment? Reenactments and live theater are still live. That's true. They are subtly different every time. That's true. As the okay. actors hone their craft and get more comfortable with the role and choose to improvise and whatnot. You would improvise. <laughs> You'd improvise a reenactment. <laughs> yeah. Course, you gotta make it interesting. I was reading on one of the Mad Max wiki sites that the dome is 30 feet tall or 9.144 meters. And I was going to elaborate on that, saying that, oh, well, if it's 30 feet tall, it must also be 30 feet wide. But the Thunder Dome is not a perfect half sphere. It is slightly taller than it is wide. Like an egg. Yeah, pretty much like an egg. You can tell that when they constructed it, they had these giant steel trusses that kind of make up these big old ribs. Like it's not a perfectly round dome either because, you know, it's made out of steel. But you've got these big old trusses that make up this rib system. And then you've got a steel lattice that goes between those trusses. So that way it actually becomes a giant cage. And the fact that they built this for real is so awesome. I have to wonder what happened to all of the pieces. I assume that they were disassembled and melted down for something else. But I feel like they could have said, okay, here is a span from the Thunderdome. Like this is a piece of steel that went into the Thunderdome and they could probably sell that as a souvenir. Yeah, I think they could nowadays, but... Back then, probably not. Yeah, back then, probably not. The movie was successful, but was it a blockbuster? Mm. No, Yeah. it wasn't. It was just a regular successful level movie. And I'm not sure, were people really like that back then? I don't know. You know, on some level, people never change. So I'm sure people have always been interested in a piece of production. Yeah. So yeah, people were like that back then. I was curious about the word dome because I get hooked up on random things. The English word dome, and this is from the Wikipedia page on the word dome, <laughs> it is derived from the Latin for domus, meaning house, which up through the Renaissance labeled a revered house, such as a domus die, or house of God, regardless of the shape of its roof. This is reflected in the use of the Italian word duomo, the German Icelandic Danish word dom, which meant cathedral, and the English word dome, which as late as 1656 meant a townhouse, guildhall, statehouse, and meeting house in a city. The French word of dosme came to acquire the meaning of a cupola vault, specifically by 1660. The French definition gradually became the standard usage of the English dome in the 18th century, as many of the most impressive houses of God were built with monumental domes and in response to the scientific need for a more technical term. So the whole idea of a dome is that you've got these curved edges that meet up in a focal point and all of the weight kind of leans in and it's propping itself up. So if you've got like an archway in a doorway, if you have a proper dome, you take away one of those sides and the whole thing will fall over in the direction of the side that you took out. Those are true arches. You've also got corbel arches, which are more or less just 
arch shaped. They don't actually serve the function of an arch. So the Thunderdome is a true arch because it's got this big metal ring at the top of the dome. And if you take that out and just leave the trusses freestanding, they would fall in on themselves. Oh, okay. When you've got a structure that you more or less plan on a ton of people climbing on, you can do a lot worse than a dome. The dome itself is naturally strong, so if you're going to have hundreds of people scurrying up the sides and sitting on top of it, it's a great structure. Perfect choice. And as I was describing, and as I think we mentioned earlier this week even, as soon as Auntie declares Thunderdome, everybody flocks to get on top of this thing. Yeah, I wonder if... In production, the extras who were scurrying up, I wonder if any of them had any worries about the structural integrity or if they saw enough of the construction that they were like, yeah, we're good. I'm pretty sure it's the latter because yeah. they do not waste any time getting all up on that thing. Yeah. And it actually makes me wonder what the ideal viewing position is. Do you want to be up on top so you can get a bird's eye view? Do you want to be down on the bottom so you can get really close to the action? Or do you want to be somewhere in the middle, kind of on the viewing platform level where Auntie and her inner circle sit so you can get kind of a mix of the two? Plus, you know, the added excitement of being up on the dome itself. I think... Different places have their different advantages. I think obviously Auntie's level, the mid-level, is going to be the best because that's why she's on that level. Yeah. And you think of stadiums, the boxes are up above the general masses for the best viewing point. <laughs> I'm also thinking of, jeez, also thinking about Harry Potter. Okay. And the Quidditch World Cup. Okay, so in the book, the gang, the Weasleys and Harry and Hermione are in the box with all the heads of state and whatnot. Oh, how did they finagle that? Arthur called in a favor. Oh, okay. It wasn't because they were with uh, the Diggory folks? No. Oh, okay. The Diggory's weren't in there. Oh, they went to a different box altogether. Yeah, they were in just normal seats. It's been a long time since I've read Yes, Goblet and of Fire. the movie completely changed it. Yeah. The movie changed it to the Weasleys kind of weren't in seats at all. I think it they were it, on like fire escapes. Yeah, it made it look like they were sneaking in kind of. Yeah, it was weird. It was really weird, which is exactly opposite from the book. In the book, they were in the best seats available to anybody. Yeah. They were with the Minister of Magic and all of the foreign dignitaries. So, yeah. Auntie's level is the best level. But when we went and saw Wicked on Broadway, we were pretty high up. The tickets were really expensive. Yeah. So we were pretty high up. But that vantage point, I don't know, was pretty good. Like we could see everything. Mm -hmm. And I think first floor balcony is usually the yeah. best view of the stage. Yeah. But then if you're down in front, which are usually the most expensive tickets and the most prized tickets, you're up close to the action and you can see everything more clearly and any one individual is larger in your view, but I think you miss out on that overall picture. Yeah. So they all have their advantages and disadvantages, but I think middle of the ground is, yeah, middle of the ground. Yeah. After a few shots of people scurrying towards the dome, we join Max, who is, I'm pretty sure, still standing on the front of that vehicle and I can only assume that Master and Blaster have been pulled aside already because he pulls his whistle out of his belt and he looks at it and this is basically us being able to see that it's still there. We need to establish that he's decided already the whistle is the way to go and so this is our chance to see yes he still has it and he's right. planning on using it. 
this is step two of Chekhov's gun, right? Exactly. Remind us that it exists. And he doesn't really get to do much with it because a guard comes up and grabs Max by the arm and pulls him down off of the vehicle. Yeah. I see this as the first step towards making sure that Max is going to lose the whistle at some point. Yeah. That he's not able to stow it in the perfect way that he would prefer. Yeah. I think he should have taken some more time to figure out the best way to keep it. Now, the last time I made an appearance, I specifically remember that I criticized Max. I don't remember what you said, but I criticized Max for not keeping it around his neck. Yeah. I went back and checked. It did not have a strap long enough to put around his neck. Okay. Yeah. But it did have a strap long enough to hold around his wrist. So in Max's downtime, which he had downtime, he should have made sure that it was safely in a place that was hidden and protected but easily accessible when he needed it. Yeah, we're going to see during the fight where he's chosen to keep the whistle, and it's, like, stuffed into his boot, I think. Yeah, what was wrong with the place he had it before? It was, like, tucked into his belt or something. So as you were talking about chain length, I had to pull the boson's whistle that I bought off of Amazon to make sure that the chain was long enough to put around my neck, and it is. It is. I think that's why I thought that there was a chain around it, because there's a chain around ours. It seems like a pretty standard feature, the long chain for keeping around the neck. It does. But, you know, it's a post-apocalypse, so. I don't know. Somebody put that leather strap on it on purpose. Yeah. So somebody had to have found that useful. You know what else is really useful? Auntie's zipline chair. Yes. Yes, it is. We get a lovely shot as Max is pulled off screen. We transition over to seeing Auntie from behind and she is sitting in this chair and then the chair moves and it's on a zip line. And we get this lovely shot from a distance of Auntie descending in this chair down along a line. And the whole time the crowd is chanting her name, Auntie auntie she's so graceful about it yeah like her ankles are crossed and she's holding herself just in a very elegant position yeah she's masterful i love that despite the embarrassing situation that happened earlier that day the general population of barter town still very devoted to auntie yes yes they are i liken it to what you said earlier where you said that they don't much care between auntie and master blaster as long as they're taken care of yes auntie is providing them with thunderdome and so they are really on auntie's side right now yeah the only thing that's better than a night of music and drinking is thunderdome yeah so she definitely outplayed him tonight Mm -hmm. and i mean you can't get a better entrance than flying through the air in your it's not really a throne but no. You know, I didn't want to say flying through the air in your zipline chair. <laughs> that just seemed a little too trite. And I said it anyway. So what does that say about me? I did a little bit of digging on ziplines. Okay. There's no information out there. About? Ziplines. About the history of ziplines. There's a little tiny bit. I looked because I figured that the history of ziplines would be long and interesting and somewhat detailed. Mm-hmm. I thought there would be names and dates about writings on using ancient zip lines and dates of when it was invented or when it was revolutionized. No, nothing like that whatsoever. Wow. What I found was that, and this is how it's been phrased, they have been used for centuries, that vague, used for centuries in the Yunnan province in China. Okay. No talk about 
who used them or when, nothing like that. Just they use them to transport people and goods over large bodies of water. Pretty much it. Probably chasms and things. I mean, yeah. the big benefit of a zip line is that it's faster and easier than building a bridge. Yes. And funny you say that because now most of those old zip lines have been replaced with bridges. There you go. Another area of the world that was listed as an early user of zip lines was Australia. Really? Yes. As Westerners started to colonize Australia, it was just a land completely different than anything that they had experienced before Mm -hmm. with different types of animals and just completely different landscape. So they would use zip lines to cross bodies of water and chasms and transport men and supplies and munitions to the front lines of battles and all that kind of stuff, exploring and Hmm. stuff like that. But I mean, even that was in what, the 1800s? Yeah. When that was all happening? That's not that long ago. No, not not relatively speaking. There should be such a long history of zip lines because it uses, there's, is it what, the the eight basic machines, something like that? Yeah. And a pulley is one of them. And a pulley is one of the basic tools of zip line design. So... I do not understand it. Weird. Yes. And nowadays, zip lines are mostly for recreational use or exploring land without disturbing the flora and fauna around you. Yeah. It's a pretty green way of exploring. As Auntie glides into her position, the chanting dies down and she raises her hand and she says, Welcome to Jurassic Park. No, she says, Welcome. <laughs> To another edition of Thunderdome. And I was trying very early on in the editing process for this podcast to find a clean cut of this line that didn't have an eruption of applause immediately after it. And I didn't find anything, but what I did find was rather interesting. Did you know that between 1992 and 2012, the Dutch entertainment company IDNT held a hardcore EDM festival entitled Thunderdome? It was held in the Netherlands for that 20 years, and then they had a 25th anniversary festival in 2017. But it is for this weird blend of house techno music mixed with hardcore heavy metal music. And they just have a music festival devoted to this style of music. And some of the clips I saw started with the clip from this movie where Tina Turner is up on this gigantic screen and she says, welcome to another edition of Thunderdome. And then this hardcore blasting EDM music just fills the hall. And there's like thousands of people at this festival and they just go nuts. That sounds very exciting. Sounds Northern European. Yes, it does. (laughs) Definitely not my scene, but it sounds very thrilling. I don't want to lump the entire region of northern europe into a bushel basket because there's always going to be outliers in any bell curve but i feel like when you go up into those darker regions because they're so far up in the longitude is it longitude that's horizontal or is that latitude i have no idea but when you're so far up on the globe where it's dark for most of the year i feel like you find a lot of those really heavy angry styles of music but people love Love, love, love that stuff. And like I said, for a good 20 years, they hosted this festival. And I don't know why they stopped. I didn't research it that heavily. But yeah, you can go out and you can find albums recorded from those music festivals. And it's just called Thunderdome. 
Did they actually get Tina Turner to do it? Or <laughs> no, was it, it was from a clip the from the movie. movie. It oh, was okay. a clip from the That's movie. That's what I figured, but I thought I'd ask. Even for the 25th, they couldn't they didn't get Tina Turner? Yeah, I don't think she would have showed up. Really? You really? don't think so? It's not her cup of tea. I don't know. I think she might have. I think you should take a moment when we're done recording and listen to the kind of music that they play at this I mean, you don't have to be into the kind of music to be supportive of the concept. I guess. Of gathering together to celebrate a common fandom. It's no different than PAX East that you just got back from. Yeah, but they don't call it Thunderdome because they love Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. They call it Thunderdome because they just call it Thunderdome. Yeah. But considering you used the word supporting, I'm going to use that as a jumping off point to say that if people are interested in supporting us, they can jump on our Patreon page, pay us $3 a month, and you get access to Anarchy Road, which is our extra content on the weekends. So after these three episodes, if you are hungry for a little bit more of us you can join us there this week on anarchy road we are in week nine captain hook is going to make his grand entrance and address the assembled pirates they're going to pull out the boo box excellent which is an amazing part of this movie and of course we get to see what passes for two-factor verification in neverland so (laughs) that's always fun but either way please come join us for the weekend show if not we will be back on monday the Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link join our patreon by clicking the support link or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link thank you for joining us for minute 27 of beyond thunderdome see you next time Over!